Grab your Bible this morning and um, turn it to Romans chapter 8. And as we get ready to preach God's word, there's something I have to do. And um, maybe this is because I spent too much time in the military. Maybe this is because I'm getting old. But when I said to myself, this Sunday I'm going to wear my sounder scarf to church, and I thought about that, and then I said, I can't bring myself to wear it in the pulpit while I'm preaching. So off goes the sounder scarf for now, because there's only room for one loyalty in this place, amen? And uh, gosh, I'm just too old to be able to get past that, so you're just going to have to deal with it. Romans chapter 8 this morning, and we're going to continue our journey that we have been on these last four weeks called Rooted, Digging Into God's Promises. And what we've been learning is that God has made some very specific promises to us that he invites us to plant our heart and our mind and our faith on. Some very specific promises that are meant to give us peace and courage in this life on our journey home. We've also been learning, equally as important, that there are some things God has not promised. There's a lot of urban legends out there about what God has promised. And a lot of them are passed around in Christian circles as if they're true, even though they're not. And the devil loves that because if he can get you to believe God has promised you something he hasn't, then when that doesn't come true, who do you feel betrayed by? And so in this series, we've been learning what God has promised and what God hasn't promised. And so far, we've learned four specific things. We've learned that God has promised that when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he will provide for us on earth. Jesus made that promise straight up and straightforward, that if you and I will seek first his kingdom, he will be our provider. We learned in the second week that Jesus said unequivocally, death will not have the last word about anybody. Death will not have the last word about you, those you love, about anybody. Jesus will have the last word about all of us. And we learned in the third week that the key to living with a peace that passes understanding is to be regularly in a disciplined way giving personal thanks to God for all the blessings that he fills our life with. The Bible says we can overcome anxiety and worry if we will practice the habit of prayerful thanksgiving. And that's a promise God gives us. We learned that in our third week. Last week, we learned that God also promises judgment with justice in this world, that he will come and undo what has been done wrong, that he will come and make right what isn't right, that perfect justice will come with judgment. That's a promise he makes, and even though it hasn't happened yet, as we saw last week in 2 Peter chapter 3, it is going to happen, and to live inside of that reality is to find hope and peace and strength and faith. This week, we're going to take the next step in that journey. And let me begin by asking you, how do you decide? What's your process for deciding whether something is worth it or not? For deciding oh, whether some difficult or demanding thing is worth doing or not. We're, we're always making that decision day in and day out. Every time my wife vacuums our house, she has a habit of coming to me and showing me how much dog hair came off the floor. And we have to answer the same old question, is she worth it? The dog, I mean, not Rhonda, in case you were wondering. You know, is she worth it? And so far, the answer is still yes. You know, she's worth it. 
You know, I have a friend who, uh, who says, I will never have a dog. He says, I just can't love it enough to make it worth all the attention that it takes. Well, those of us who have pets, we, we make that decision. We decide what's worth it or not. How do you make that decision? Ask a woman in labor if it's worth it to give birth to that child, and she'll say yes, probably, or at least she'll say yes eventually, later on. You and me are always facing this question, church. Should we sign a mortgage and obligate ourselves for 15 or 30 years, or should we rent instead not obligating ourselves, but facing a whole different set of questions. Should I, should I take that job in another city if it means we have to pull the kids out of school? You know, is it worth it to move, to leave behind one community for another? Should I go into debt to go to college or not? Is that a, a good deal? Is that worth it? Is it worth it to deny myself so that I can follow Jesus? since he says that's part and parcel of following him. Is it worth it to listen to country music when I know it's not good for me? We make those decisions all the time. We're always deciding what's worth it. How do you decide what's worth it? Because really, a huge part of our life is, is that decision, made in a million little and different ways. How do you decide what's worth it? You probably heard the old story about the couple who had courtside season tickets to Kentucky basketball games and were famous for never missing a game in 50 years. But one Saturday, the wife showed up alone. The guy next to her, who had always admired their marriage, asked where her husband was. She explained that after 60 years of being together, he had passed away. And so she came to the game today alone. And so he asked, he said, you mean you couldn't find someone else to come with you? Maybe somebody from your family? She sighed, no, they're all at the funeral today. <laughs> you heard that story, it's been around for a while. Yeah, how do you decide what's worth it, right? Because that decision is, that's an old story. Part of me didn't want to tell it because I figured everybody knew it. But uh, yeah, how do you decide what's worth it? Sometimes church, that question is extremely serious. Is it worth it to keep struggling in this marriage? Is it worth it to be devoted to the promises that I made before God and these witnesses? Is it worth it to tell the truth and suffer the consequences when I could lie or just keep my mouth shut and suffer no consequences? Is it worth it to take up across and follow Jesus. He said, let me remind you this morning, he was unequivocal, the Lord was. In Matthew chapter 16, he said, if anyone would come, anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me We'll save it. Mark's gospel says we'll keep it for eternity. How do you decide about those kinds of moments when it's a cross or no cross, when it's self-denial or, or self-indulgence? Everybody must decide. Everybody does decide. How do you make that decision? 
The reason I bring this up is because God makes a, a sacred and solemn promise to us in his word that has to do with this very issue. And you'll find that promise over in Romans chapter 8. That's why I invited you to turn there a moment ago. First, we're going to look at verses 16 to 19, and then we're going to zero in on verses 28 to 29. Let's listen to what God's word says to us. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 16. The Bible says, The Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, third person of that trinity we just sang about, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We who have believed in Jesus, received him as a Savior. We are his sons and daughters, not merely his employees. That we are God's children. And if we are children, catch this, then we are heirs. It's a very significant word. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. That's a mouthful. We're going to unpack that this morning. I consider that our present sufferings, Paul writes, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, I, I want to pause there for a moment and unpack that before we move on to really the center of the promise, which is found in verses 28 and 29. What the apostle is saying here is that followers of Christ have an inheritance that God is preparing us to receive. An inheritance that God is preparing us to enjoy. You, you might circle in your Bible the word heirs because what it means is that we have something, it belongs to us, but we haven't received it yet. That's the definition of an heir. You are an heir if you have received Christ as your Savior. You have an inheritance. It belongs to you. It is in your name, but you haven't received it yet. We don't receive it until we get home, but that doesn't make it any less ours. And along with that inheritance comes the dedication of a Father God to prepare us to enjoy it and receive it to experience it in all of its fullness. Take a look at the picture that's on the screen behind you. It's a picture of a young man. His name is, is Rory. And once I tell you his last name, you'll know why I'm talking about him right now. You, you, you may not recognize that face. If you saw him on the street today, you might not think much of him. But this young man, listen up, single ladies, this young man is an heir. Oh boy, is he. In fact... He is the legal inheritor of, at last count, about $136 billion. That's with a B, okay? I wonder if he just got more handsome suddenly in that moment. <laughs> His dad is somebody you might have heard of. His dad's name is Bill, and this is Rory Gates, who stands to inherit all of that. Now, if you knew that you stood to receive that kind of inheritance, what would be worth it to you in the meantime? What would you willing, be willing to do that your father asked? We can do away with the picture. Some of the girls are getting gaga eyes. And what, would you, you know, do, what would you be willing to do that your father asks in the meantime, knowing that it was part of his passing on to you of your inheritance? Think about that. It's all of that kind of thinking that the apostle has in mind when he tells us that we are heirs of Christ. 
If God is your father because you've received Christ as your savior, then you are an heir like Rory. In fact, you are an heir far greater than Rory because your fortune that you will receive makes his look like a sack of hot dogs, if I can just call it that. The Bible says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us, we didn't earn it, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, and never fade. Kept in heaven for you. It's yours, you don't have it yet, but you are destined for it. Think that through. An inheritance is something that is yours now, even though you haven't received it yet. So many people judge themselves or others in terms of what we have or haven't received now. That's a mistake. God says we have an inheritance we haven't received yet because it's kept in heaven for you. Sometimes somebody will ask me, Pastor Greg, who's your favorite pastor? Who do you really enjoy? Well, I can tell you who my favorite speaker is. It's a guy named Tony Evans who pastors the Urban Alternative Church in Dallas, Texas. He's been my favorite preacher for a lot of years. But if you ask me who the pastor is that I most admire, I would have to say I don't know who it is yet because probably none of us know who he or she is yet. Because true greatness isn't always immediately evident. I think when we get to heaven and God passes out rewards, like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says he's going to do to believers in particular for the way in which we've chosen or not chosen to serve his church, we're going to find that the most amazingly rewarded person is somebody we never heard of. The media didn't notice. They didn't sell a lot of books. They didn't get a lot of attention. No, no, no. But who they were is so precious in God's eyes that even though we don't see them having received the inheritance now, it's coming. What if, uh, you know, on the subject of this heir inheritance thing, what if you got a letter in the mail today that said, hey, goofball, I just set up a legal trust for you deposited a kajillion drillion megabucks in it, and all you've got to do is wait until you're 30 or whatever to collect it. Some of us get emails like that. Have you ever noticed? Here's somebody in Africa who wants to pass this on to you. But this is a real one. If you got a letter like that, what would be worth it in your eyes in order to receive that inheritance? You know, a better question might be, what wouldn't be worth it? If God asked you, because of your inheritance to avoid sexual immorality, to not steal or cheat or lie, to set aside one of every seven days in your life to worship, to never take his name in vain, to devote the next 60 or 70 or 80 years to serving your wife or husband and kids or your church, would you whine and complain that it's too hard, too demanding or unnatural? I know I wouldn't. I'd be thinking, man... Whatever's asked of me in preparation for receiving that inheritance, sign me up because it's going to be worth it beyond words. Or what if he said, hey, I've got this inheritance for you. You'll pick it up when you're 30 or a few years from now. In the meantime, I need you to treat your life like it's a mission. I want you to devote yourself to loving God and to loving other people no matter what it takes would you say, ah, that's too much to ask for a kajillion, trillion megabucks? No, you wouldn't. You would say, yeah, I can do that. That's the least I can do. 
That is exactly what the Apostle Paul is telling us is our situation as Christians, is our reality as believers. God says, man, I got this inheritance for you. Oh, my goodness. Now, I need you to do some stuff, Greg. In the meantime, I need you to deny yourself. I need you to put others first. I need you to do some stuff here. And I'm like, sign me up. That is what the Apostle Paul is calling our attention to in this moment. And that program of preparation to receive that inheritance is directly connected to the promise that God gives us that we're going to see in just a moment. Notice at the end of that passage in verse 19 that the Apostle Paul says in describing that inheritance, he says what we're going through can't compare with the glory that will be revealed in us. Here's something you want to understand. This inheritance that we are going to receive is not just stuff. And we talk about it in terms of megabucks, but in reality, it's much more than that. It's not only what is given to us. It's not only the receipt of stuff. It is indeed more who we become. That's why Paul speaks of the glory that will be revealed in us. And life in the meantime as we're going to see in this promise, is all about being prepared to receive and enjoy that inheritance in its fullness. The greater part of it is who we are becoming, the glory that will be revealed in us. Your life looks different when you stop asking God, why is this happening? And start considering whether what's happening is worth it or not in light of your inheritance. You see, being an heir means having an inheritance and it means being prepared for that inheritance. Let me explain. You and me understand that, that an inheritance, money, blessing, stuff, whatever, can bless and it can also spoil. An heir can be an amazing steward or an heir can be entitled and spoiled. If you're wise, you're a little bit intimidated by the thought of a Father God handing you a huge inheritance because it means that the bar for your performance and mine has been raised. It means now we are called to live up to that inheritance. It means now more will be asked of us in light of what we're going to receive than will be asked of those who aren't receiving the same. In other words, that we will be brought into a preparation in order to share in that inheritance. Look at verse 17 again. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. In other words, the inheritance is not merely uh, uh, like winning a lottery where you just get a bunch of stuff for nothing. No, God says, I'm going to give this to you personally, Greg, and so I'm going to prepare you for the experience of receiving and using that inheritance. Church, understand something. God's word tells us that Jesus himself, the firstborn among us as sons and daughters of God, Jesus himself was made perfect through suffering. Listen to what Hebrews says. Chapter 2, verses 10 and following. In bringing many sons to glory, that's us, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And because we're of the same family, because we have the same father, we get the same parenting. Grasp this, church. You see, God, in promising us an inheritance, 
also promises to prepare us for it. He promises, in fact, to use every part of our earthly lives to prepare us for the receiving of that inheritance. And that is what he is doing in your life right now and in my life right now. He is not causing every circumstance that occurs in our lives. Very often we cause them ourselves or they are caused by others. But he is, he promises to use every single thing we go through to prepare us for that inheritance, to build that inheritance not only on the outside of us, but on the inside of us. Grasp this. Our world is filled with silly and juvenile and demonic ideas to the contrary. We say things like YOLO, you only live once. What a lie. That's not true. Every one of us is headed out of this life and into the real one. We say it's better to burn out than fade away. Nonsense. God says that we are going to live forever. We say live for today because tomorrow might not come. Baloney, tomorrow is coming. And it changes everything when you understand that you are being prepared today for an inheritance that you will receive tomorrow. Stay the night, baby. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Lies, lies, lies. And God wants to reorient your thinking and mind to understand that the inheritance that we're waiting for will make anything we could have had in the meantime seem like nothing. In fact, he says it's not worth comparing. But along with that inheritance comes a preparation. If you were going to hand off $130 billion to your teenager, you would suddenly have an agenda in your teenager's life. Because you would understand how important and needful it was. You would recognize, oh my goodness, my child could be destroyed by that. Unless I prepare them for it. Sometimes we forget that that's what God is doing in our lives. We forget that he is preparing us to receive that inheritance. And when we do, we can really get in a bad place. We can get discouraged. We can lose our our, our confidence. We can lose our faith. We can lose our joy. You remember the story of the people of God at the fortress of Jericho? I'm sure you remember that story. You find it back in in, uh, Joshua chapter 6. But it really begins a little earlier in Numbers chapter 13. It tells us that Israel, having traveled through the wilderness, sent some scouts into their inheritance, which was the promised land. God was bringing them to it. And they sent some scouts ahead to check it out. And the scouts came back and they were excited. They said, verse 27 of chapter 13 of Numbers, the place is flowing with milk and honey, which is an ancient way of saying it's epic. This is a prime piece of real estate. This is worth it. And they were jacked about it. But they also said, verse 28 and 33 of chapter 13 of Numbers, they also said the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large and we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. In other words, there's some, there's some tough and demanding preparation to enter that promised land and, and we're kind of intimidated by it. When they headed into the land and they came to the first big fortress, the city of Jericho, they looked at each other and said, now what? <laughs> You know, we're not a a military machine. We're a group of refugees who just spent 40 years in the wilderness. And we're just beginning to enter our inheritance. How are we going to capture this fortress? And the Bible says, verses 2 to 5 of Joshua chapter 6, that the Lord said to Joshua in that moment, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Here's what you're going to do. 
March around this city once a day with all your armed men. Do this for six days. Then have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around that city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Can you imagine what it was like when Joshua had his first staff meeting after God gave him those instructions? And he said, here's how we're going to do this, fellas. Can you imagine what you would have thought in that moment? What, we're going to march around it once a day? Shouldn't we like make plans to attack? Shouldn't we start building siege engines and digging tunnels and training our guys up? Shouldn't we do that? Joshua says, no, we're going to march around it once a day. Well, okay, I can see how that might be a morale boost. You know, maybe we're psyching ourselves out. But then he says, on the seventh day, we're going to march around it seven times, and then we're going to blow a bunch of trumpets. Excuse me, question. <laughs> how, how is this supposed to work? And in that moment, they faced a crisis. The crisis was, am I going to believe that God's in, at work in this or not? You and I face the same crisis every single time we're called to deny ourselves. We're called to take up our cross. We're called to decide if something is worth it. We are facing that same moment. Now, you know the end of the story, Israel did exactly what God had told Joshua to lead them in. And on the seventh day, the walls miraculously, supernaturally collapsed and the city was captured. But don't forget that before that were seven long days of preparation. Seven days of people saying to themselves, am I going to do it this God's way? Or am I going to quit? Or am I going to do it, try to do it my way? And that same challenge remains for us day in and day out. Sometimes we look around at our own lives and we say, God, I don't see how this leads to that. But God promises that it does. Here's the promise that we want to center on this morning, the solemn and sacred promise that God gives you and I. And it's found in verses 28 and 29 of Romans chapter 8. Here's what God says to you. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who loved him, who love him, and who have been called according to his purpose. In all things in your life, Greg, in all things in your life, God is at work. And his purpose is in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, catch this, to be conformed to the likeness of his son, to become more and more on the inside like Jesus, that we might, that, uh, we might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, that's the connection back to verses 16 to 19 where it speaks of the glory that will be revealed in us. See, here's the promise. There's stuff that happens in your life and you say, God, I don't know why this is happening. And if you follow that train of thinking very long, you can talk yourself right out of following him. And knowing that, he gives us a promise. He says, Greg, stuff's going to happen in your life that you're not going to understand. You're not going to know why it's happening. You're not going to know why I'm allowing it. But I want to make you a solid promise, Greg. I will use everything that happens in your life to shape you into the image of my son. And church, once you receive that promise and once you believe that promise, you will find inside of yourself an ability to overcome that you never imagined was there. Because you say to yourself when it gets hard and when it gets blessed, you say to yourself, God is at work in me. 
God is conforming me to the likeness of Christ. God is preparing me to receive that inheritance, not only on the outside, but on the inside. What we become, friends, is always more glorious than what we get. And that's what God is focused on. Let's take just a minute to understand this. Some of us think that if things are tough in our lives, we're not doing something right. We assume that if we were doing everything right before God, it wouldn't be hard. And everything would make sense. But God never promises that. He never promises that it will make sense to us now. But he clearly promises. What he's saying unequivocally in this passage is that when you get to the end, you will look back and you will say, that was worth it. That was worth it. Thank you for that. Church, this is a a promise that is intended to anchor your soul. I don't know what you're going through right now, but all of us are going through stuff. And God says that he's at work in you, in it. Again, understand, he doesn't cause all the circumstances. Some of them are caused by our own failures. Some of them are caused by the wickedness of people around us. But he says, Greg, no matter what happens, I'm going to use it to make you more and more like my son. I'm going to use it to transform you in ways that will cause you to say when the process is done, it was worth it. I often, when I think about this, I often go back to my time in boot camp. That was miserable. (laughs) You know, somebody says, would you do it again for a million dollars? Let me get back to you, okay? Because that was not a lot of fun, all right? But you know what? At the end of it, I looked back and I said, wow, (laughs) I don't know that I could have learned some of those things any other way. Yeah, that was worth it. That was worth it. Now, why don't you go do it next? Because I've already done it. I'm done. I'm through that, right? But that's the reality that God is talking about in this promise. And this is important. We're almost done this morning. You know, some people live with a kind of bitterness because they don't understand how God is using the tough stuff they're going through. And in that moment, they have a choice. God, I don't understand it, but does that mean it isn't happening? God says it is. God says, will you believe my promise that I'm at work in it? That will set you free from that bitterness. Listen to how the Apostle Paul addresses this subject in other places. For example, in Romans chapter 5, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. James says the same thing. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, so that glory will be revealed in you as the greater part of the inheritance that you promised that you have been promised. I mentioned birth pains at the beginning this morning. When a mom-to-be goes into labor, there's this part of her that's thinking, what am I doing here? Why did I agree to this? And she looks at her husband and says, what have you done to me? But her groaning doesn't mean something's wrong. It means something's right. Jesus put it this way. He said, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of the joy that a child is born into the world. In other words, at the end, she says, okay, that was worth it. Okay, that was, that was worth it. So will we. 
That's the promise God makes to us. In whatever's going on in your life, he says, I promise you, I am at work in it. And I will use it to transform you, to grow you, to increase you until you're able to look back when it's all behind you, when you're receiving that inheritance and say, man, that was worth it. (laughs) The promise God makes is that you will feel that same kind of joy and satisfaction. It's Veterans Day weekend. No soldier will volunteer to get shot or blown up or burned or killed for fun. But a whole bunch of them volunteer for it every single day of the year because they know that it would be worth it to save a life or to protect freedom. And in the same way, God invites us to understand that we will say it's worth it. That we will say that what we went through was worth it because it transformed us. Let me finish this morning. You know, when I was younger, church, if I can just be personal and transparent with you. When I was younger as a believer, young as a minister, um, I desperately wanted to be able to lay my hands somewhere in my life on a father figure. My grandfather, who was so significant to me, didn't outwardly or openly share my faith, and so it was tough to have that connection. I wanted a spiritual father figure. I prayed for it. I hoped to find one at Bible college. I hoped to find one in my senior pastor when I became a youth pastor for the first time. I was looking around for that figure anywhere and everywhere. And so many times I cried out to God and said, God, please send that person. And he didn't. Over and over and over again, he didn't. And that was hard for me. I said, how come I see other guys? They have these mentors. God says, I'm not going to give that to you. And I agonized over that and I hurt over that until bit by bit, piece by piece, as the years went by, God said, Greg, there's a reason I'm not going to do that. It's because I want you to know me as your spiritual father figure. I want you to know me as your dad. And if I give you somebody else, it'll get in the way. It will actually reduce it. Can I tell you that now, all these years later, I look back and I am so thankful that he never answered that prayer. Because in fact, through all of that journey, he was at work shaping me into the image of his son. And in the same way, he's at work in your life. You look around and you say, God, why is all this happening? And God, this can't be helping. He says, I promise you that in all things in your life, I'm at work shaping you into the image of Christ and bringing you, when you get home, into that inheritance. And you're meant to rest in it. Can can I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Maybe you're here today and, and there's stuff going on in your life that you don't understand. Why is my marriage hard? Why are my kids behaving this way? Why is work such a challenge? Why is it so hard to find a home in a local church? God says, I'm at work in it. He promises you, I'm at work in this stuff. And I will bring you to a place where you say, okay, that's worth it. What I learned, who I have become, that is worth it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. That's his solemn promise to you, that in all things, God is at work in those who love him. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word.
God, teach us to rest in it. Teach us to take that promise in and hold on to it. And let it transform us. We pray for that. We ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes we're not going to understand, you know. But God says, I'm at work in it.